0: Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the proposed amnesty offered to those involved in killings during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. More than a thousand murders remain unsolved from the conflict, which dates back to the UK government's decision to send in troops to patrol the streets in 1969. The amnesty is conditional upon those involved cooperating with a new Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery, the ICRIR, and those who don't engage risk tougher sentences than at present. According to the government, this will draw a line under three decades of conflict. The bill is currently going through Parliament, but this is Brandon Lewis, the then Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, in the House of Commons in 2021. We know that the prospect of the end of criminal prosecutions will be difficult for some to accept, and this is not a position that we take lightly. But we have come to the view that this is the best and only way to facilitate an effective information retrieval and provision process, and the best way to help Northern Ireland move further along the road to reconciliation. Time is crucial, and as it moves on we risk the very real possibility that we will lose any chance to get the vital information that families want and need. They have waited long enough and a focus on information would offer the best chance of giving more families some sense of justice through acknowledgement, accountability and restorative means. Brandon Lewis, now the plan is supported by the group representing 200,000 army veterans who served in Northern Ireland, but is fiercely opposed by many victims' families. We'll hear shortly from Billy McManus, whose dad Willie was murdered by loyalist paramilitaries during an attack on a betting shop in Belfast in 1992. And from Julie Hambleton, whose sister Maxine was one of 21 victims of an IRA bomb in Birmingham in 1974. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer telling us what to say. There are no large corporations leaning on us to support their interests. We rely instead on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless non-partisan journalism, exposing corruption and holding the powerful to account. Get details on how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. And subscriptions start from as little as as £3 a month. More details, as I say, at bylinetimes.com, which is our news-breaking website. Welcome then to Julie and to Billy. Billy, just tell me a little bit about your dad. What kind of fellow was he?
1: He was a typical father. He worked, liked to drink at the weekend, and liked to bet on the horses. He enjoyed a pint of Guinness. And can you remember that day,
0: 1992, when he went to the betting shop?
1: Yes, the last time I seen my father alive, he was walking towards a batting shop and the two of us waved to each other. And then about a half an hour later, I was in a coffee shop 200 yards away from the batting shop when I was told that something had happened in the the bookies. I run run up to the bookies and which I seen my uncle was sitting outside and he had been shot. And I asked him what was going on. There was a lot of screaming and a lot of shouting. He asked me, he says, go in and see how your father is. I went into Sean Green's bookies for no more than two to three seconds before a person put me out. And I know that I seen wee James Kennedy, who was killed on the floor, Joe McNally, who was one of the injured, I was outside. I went back to my uncle who was bleeding from wounds to his stomach when the ambulance came. And he tr- told me again to get in and see how my father was. The next time I tried to get in, there was a policeman there. And I asked him, I told him my father was inside, I need to get in. And he says, no, you don't be going in there. You don't want to go in there. And then I stood outside and let paramedics running in and out frantically, and then a good friend of mine came out of Sean Green's bookies who was in, attending to the wounded and the dead, and he came out and he told me my father was dead.
0: And he was one of five people in that betting shop who had been murdered in cold blood for no other crime than being Catholic?
1: They were all Catholic, all, as we have always said, innocent. None of them was in any paramilitaries. None of them had any political beliefs. One of the dead was a 15-year-old child called James Kennedy. My teammate, who I played football with, Peter McGee, was 17. And then Jack Duffin and Christy Docherty also died along with my father. And there were seven injured, five of them seriously injured.
0: And your father's killer, or killers have never been brought to justice. Has anybody faced justice for this appalling crime?
1: No, no one has faced justice for the murders. People have been put in jail for being caught with the murder weapons, but they didn't commit the murder. The murders of my father are still alive. The people who carried out the murders and the driver are still alive to this day. Have never faced justice. Never faced a police investigation. The two gunmen in the Sean Green's bookies. One had a fifty-eight automatic rifle that was shipped in with an agent called Brian Nelson in eighty-seven, with the help of British intelligence to arm loyalist paramilitaries. These fees fifty-eights went on to be part of some of the biggest atrocities in the conflict. A Fee 58 was used in Lappan Island, which killed six. A Fee 58 was used in Greysteel, which I think killed eight. And the handgun that was used in Sean Green's boogies was taken from a British barracks by an agent. His name was Ken Barrett, who was working for the British government. He walked into a, a British barracks and took rifles handguns and ammunition, and it's hard to believe the handgun was found by the police and then given back to the killers to be used again, which was used in the killing of my father, and none of these people in any connection to this case have ever faced charges or been prosecuted.
0: I'll return in a little while, Billy, to the role and the responsibility of the british state but let's bring in julie at this point and julie you and i have spoken many times about the birmingham pub bombings but for people who don't know about your sister maxine she was your big sister just give us a little flavor of maxine
2: maxine was 18 when she was killed and she was full of life. I mean, she really was. She had that year in 1974, the year she was killed, not long returned from France because she went there with Jane Davies, who was also killed. She was only 17, to go grape picking in the Champagne vineyards to improve her French for her A-levels. And she'd also done some work at Pontings with another friend, Annette, because she wanted to get as much experience as she could before she went back to sixth form at Sheldon Heath Grammar School. She would make her own clothes. Anyone who is aware of um, Assis the Maxine uh, and the picture of her where she's wearing a hat and a white dress. She made that dress herself. She was one of these people that could put her hand to anything. She was really talented. She was happy and intelligent. And as we've been campaigning through the years and we meet people who knew her or went to school with her, even people who didn't know her very well said she always had a smile on her face. Everybody liked Maxine, which is. Difficult to hear because she's not here, but it's lovely because they can give us their own experiences. We also have managed to meet the gentleman who was her boyfriend at the time. He brings flowers every year and has done for the past 47 years to remember her. I mean, obviously, he's lived his own life since, but is still raw with sadness and grief as we are.
0: And for people who don't know the circumstances of the Birmingham pub bombings, we're talking about two very popular city centre pubs in Birmingham that were bombed by the IRA, just young people, mostly young people, but people of all ages just out for a a good night out at the weekend who were callously, brutally murdered. Six people were jailed for the bombings, the so-called Birmingham Six, but it turned out that they had been wrongly imprisoned. And since then, no successful prosecution has been brought.
2: Yes, that's correct. The authorities and the police at the time did an excellent job on the men who became known as the Birmingham Six, one of which, Paddy Hill, who fought and fought and fought for 16 years to prove that they didn't do it and they'd been set up, has since become one of our staunchest supporters. When Brian and I first met Paddy...
0: And Brian, just for those who don't know the story, Brian is your brother.
2: Yeah. That meeting was the hardest thing we had ever done. Uh, I went into the meeting and I was inconsolable because I thought I was being a traitor to our mother a traitor to Maxine and the other 20. Brian managed to keep it together. But as it turns out, it was the best thing we had ever done at that time. Paddy promised to give us access to his files, of which there are something like 600 boxes. He kept his promise and much more. He is a man of his word. His assistance helped us to build our fight for truth and justice and accountability. And with the help of our fantastic legal team, KRW, who continue to represent us pro bono, I mean, it's just incredible. And also, I must state Andy Richards at the Birmingham Mail and Mark Reeves, their uh, regional editor, that their support has been absolutely phenomenal because... Andy Richards at the Birmingham Mail had realised during a conversation I was having with him many years ago that since the Birmingham Six had been released in 1991, that we hadn't had an inquest because when the Birmingham Six were rounded up, an inquest was opened up in the November of 1974 after the bombings, but it was shut down the same day because they were arrested and because it was murder, Apparently, there is no inquest required, which to any layperson would sound very odd. It sounded very odd to me. But, but since, you did
0: successfully campaign then for an inquest many yes, years we, later.
2: Yes, but uh, during that campaign, we had to fight the very authorities that put the Birmingham Six away because they didn't want us to have an inquest. So we were in court fighting to get permission to have an inquest. And those who were against us were the security forces, MI5, MI6, the Police Federation, the Westminster Police themselves and the emergency services. we all fighting because they didn't want us to have an inquest. Why would they not want us to have an inquest? But we did fight successfully and our inquest began in 2019.
0: And in 2019, the coroner at the inquest into the Birmingham pub bombings ruled that the victims had been unlawfully killed. A pretty obvious outcome, I suppose you might say, given the nature of the killings. What do you make then of the proposal to offer an amnesty to those who cooperate with this new independent reconciliation body?
2: I have to say it's depressing, to say the least. The problem for us is that if there is anything to do with Republican or any paramilitary violence, it appears that successive governments simply do not want to investigate it. It is off limits. One of the many reasons is that it's believed that top members of the IRA were working with the British state and still could be. If their crimes are unravelled in court or in any court case, in our opinion, this could potentially destabilise the democracy in Northern Ireland. Republican collusion is being protected from any investigation by the British state, and this is no more evident than with this obscene Northern Ireland legacy and reconciliation bill otherwise known as the amnesty bill. Now, if this bill is implemented, what it will literally, quite literally do is wipe out centuries of legislation and remove all rights, literally all the rights to the victims who were murdered in cold blood, like Billy's dad, Billy's uncle, who was injured thousands of others from ever getting an investigation bring any criminal cases to court or being able to bring any civil action against a perpetrator or even the state itself. This bill, in effect, will allow the state to literally, and this is the whole purpose of this bill, don't be blinded by the gumph that they're giving you. This is quite literally to give the states the opportunity to bury their inconvenient truth that they do not want to ever escape into the public domain that will illustrate in great detail their collusion and complicity during the troubles. Now, if anyone's thinking I sound like a conspiracy theorist, just look up State Knife. His name is Franz Scappettici. Just look him up. And check him out. If you want evidence to prove what I'm saying, that they want to bury their inconvenient truth of collusion and complicity, there is no prime better example than him. The excuse they're using about this bill is to protect the soldiers from prosecution. It's utter, total rubbish. Soldiers are being used as scapegoats. I know of hundreds of soldiers who do not agree with this bill and have openly stated that if there is a case for them to answer, they are prepared to go to court. As one soldier said to me, there is no honour in amnesty.
0: And for those who don't know, of course, you can go away and look it up, but State Knife is the codename of a spy who successfully infiltrated the IRA whilst working for a unit of the British Army and there's a suggestion that he was a double agent who saw the murder of informers within the IRA whilst working for the British state. It should be said that this theory has never been proved in court, but it is widely believed and has been often reported. Billy, what do you think of the proposal to offer an amnesty?
1: I'm sitting here 31 years later after my father's murder and I'm proud to say that I'm part of the truth and justice movement that Julie's part of. But to just to sit there and listen to Julie, who is a beautiful English woman that I'm glad I met, and she has just totally told the truth, it is to hide the fact that the British government were in all capacities connected to murders in the north and in England. It's just to protect demons. It's not about the victims. It's not about the injured. They don't want the truth coming out. What Julie says, they're using these so-called soldiers that served in the 60s, 70s, and 80s as scapegoats to pass this bill to hide the atrocities that they carried out in here. And that's what they done. They recruited agents. They armed them. And to this they are protecting them. And this legacy bill, as Julie pointed out, stops inquests, civil actions. The only way families can get to the truth is through these actions. And they're just going to close this down. Um Brandon Lewis and, and I was there when Julie was very, very angry at draw a lane under it. This is not going to help any of the victims' families. It's not going to help the survivors who are injured. This is only going to hide what the British government did in this country for over 30 years and in England. And that's what they don't want to come out.
0: Would forcing those who were involved in the killings to take part in this new process, though, that's proposed by the bill, would that not ensure that some of these dark truths came out into the light. Would that not be part of the reconciliation process?
1: Adrian, my father was shot nine times. He was shot eight times with a said V-SED-58. And when he lay on the ground Dan, the gunman with the handgun bent down and put a bullet through his head. I know the names of those two people. I know the names of the getaway driver. The the security forces know the names of everyone involved in Sean Graham's bookies. But this is how you you need to try to tell people. At least two of the people involved in Sean Graham's bookies were agents of the state. So what they're doing is they're protecting them by passing this bill. I know everything that happened in Sean Graham's bookies. I know where they parked the car. I know the house they went to get chased. I know everything. What I want is I want the people who murdered my father and four other people in the fifth of February '82 to face the full rigors of the law and to go to jail. Because that's what the days deserve. Murderers shouldn't be able to walk the streets free. This amnesty is saying, Oh, with the murders, these people who committed these murders, tell the truth. We know what they did to us. They killed our they murdered our families. In barbaric ways. And to to be told what happened in the final minutes of like, my father or Julie's sister and all the rest of the pure people that died in the Birmingham bombings, we know what happened. But what I want is I want everybody connected to my father's murder, brought to court, charged and convicted. That's the law. The British government want to change the law to protect demons. They don't care about the victims. They don't care about the victim families. They want nothing. They want to erase the last 30 years of the conflict that it didn't happen because it attacks demons.
0: You're saying, Billy, that this is not justice.
1: No. This is not justice. To let people away from murder is not justice. To let people away who maimed and injured children, women, men, on both sides. On oh, it doesn't matter if it's paramilitaries, security forces. If there's evidence there that can bring you to court and convict you for murder or injuring somebody, it needs to be done. It. How can you let anyone away with murder? It's one of the. If you're a religious person, it's one of the Ten Commandments. I shall not kill. The British government they're actually saying it's okay to kill your family but it's not okay to kill this person. So because our families were killed during the conflict or the troubles whatever you want to call it it's okay. Go to the people who were blown up in the Manchester bombing and ask them would they accept an amnesty for the people who murdered their loved ones or killed MPs when they were in their office or stabbed that police or killed policemen when they're on duty outside the houses of parliament. Go to their families and say to Emmons, We're gonna give your the murderer of your father, brother, sister, daughter, mum an honesty. Is that okay with you? No, it will not be okay with anyone. This is only being brought about to be attacked the hidden secrets about what really went on in this country, and in England, for over 30 years of the troubles.
0: Billy McManus with Julie Hambleton, and it's worth noting in relation to the murder of Billy's dad, that in 2022, the police ombudsman for Northern Ireland found that there had been collusive behaviour between officers from the Royal Ulster Constabulary, as it was at the time, and members of the Loyalist UDA who were involved in the attack. The same report also found that there were significant failures in the police investigation, a blood sample not tested, an alibi not checked and that files relating to the murders had been deliberately destroyed. When the Northern Ireland Troubles, Legacy and Reconciliation Bill, i.e. the Amnesty Bill, was introduced, the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson said it would lift the threat of prosecution from British soldiers who had served during the Troubles. But the kind of cover-up Billy and Julie are alleging involves the security services. Gronya Teggart is Amnesty International's Deputy Director for Northern Ireland. Does she think the state is trying to protect itself?
3: There's no doubt that the UK government have made no secret of the fact. In fact, they're on the record and have said quite publicly that the bill is about protecting state forces. So they've been very clear on that. From our point of view, the bill, obviously, and the de facto amnesty that it amounts to will apply to both state and non-state actors. And it amounts to a very disturbing interference in the justice system. It will serve to close down all paths to justice for victims. It has no support amongst victims, the victims' community, and there's been expressed concerns raised by the international human rights community also. But irrespective of that, the UK government seem intent on pushing this through to become law, and that is something that we are gravely concerned about, not only for the implications that it will have for victims, but also the very dangerous precedent it would set internationally by signalling to other states that they, too, can shun their human rights obligations and legislate for impunity.
0: And there has been, as you say, international condemnation.
3: Yes, I mean, we have heard from the Council of Europe Commissioner on Human Rights and the Council of Europe Committee of Ministers, the United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights just last week, and also the United Nations Special Rapporteurs. And they have all been echoing the concerns that we and others have been raising that this bill constitutes a very serious breach of the UK's human rights obligations and really what the focus and the priority of government should be is putting victims at the centre of legacy processes. What instead we see is the UK government sacrificing victims' rights to shield perpetrators of very serious crimes such as, as murder and torture. There feels like there is an inevitable trajectory here of legal challenge if the UK government continue to disregard the overwhelming opposition to the bill. And as Amnesty, our view on that would be, we expect to see, and of course will support, individual legal challenges, but what we also have been calling for is for the Irish government to have a clear role in this also, to consider taking the UK government to the European Court of Human Rights in what's called an interstate case, and that is something that we have publicly called for and are continuing to push for. Because not only does this bill obviously breach the UK's human rights obligations, it also breaches the Good Friday Agreement. And there have been eggs on other agreements between the UK and Irish governments around how to deal with the past. There had been an agreed way forward on these matters. But of course, then the UK government have unilaterally departed from that and are now set on a road where they are, as I say, protecting perpetrators at the expense of victims, which is having a re-traumatising effect of victims. And it it is very much a gross betrayal of victims who had been expecting to see the truth, justice and accountability to which they are entitled through the mechanisms proposed under the Stormont House Agreement.
0: We have a situation, though, where more than a a thousand killings still have not been cleared up through the judicial process. And because they happened decades ago, there has to be a question about whether it's realistic to ever expect those cases to be brought to justice, whether we have the resources to bring those cases to justice, and whether we have the evidence to bring those cases to justice. So Isn't there a practical argument that if we have a commission for reconciliation and information recovery, that might actually do a better job in terms of ensuring that people who have lost loved ones know what happened to them? And it does allow Northern Ireland and people in the rest of the UK as well to, as the government says, draw a line under this.
3: Well, I think if we take what's proposed in this bill in the first instance, what we have here is not capable of delivering for victims. The threshold, for example, for information that would be given from a perpetrator to the ICRIR, which would be the information recovery body, investigations would be replaced by very light-touch reviews under that body, and you could have a perpetrator basically give an account of information or give an account of events to the best of their knowledge, but that could include information that is already in the public domain. It could include information that was given at a time through what wasn't an independent investigation, what was a very flawed process at the time of events. So what we have in terms of the proposals here on the table is not capable in any way, shape or form of delivering for victims. And we've been very clear on that. And victims have also been very clear on that. They have no confidence in the proposals that are on the table here. I mean, if we consider even the control that the Secretary of State would have over the ICRIR, in terms of the appointments, you know, the caseload, when the work would stop. You know, all of these points have not been addressed through government amendments that we've just seen debated in the House of Lords. I mean, there are very thinly veiled attempts there by government to dress those amendments up, but somehow reflecting the concerns that have been expressed. But their intention of legislating for de facto amnesty, there's no departure from that. And there's nothing about this bill that is victim-centred. Instead, it just dismisses their very clear objections Now is the time for the UK Parliament to decide if it's going to allow government to cast aside the rule of law and sacrifice victims' rights to protect those perpetrators. We don't have perfect systems at the minute, but they are delivering for victims. I mean, if we consider, for example, the Bala Murphy inquest as a case in point, the official state record, if you like, had been that the use of force in those cases was justified because the men and women were IRA men and women. Of course, through the inquest process, all of those um, victims were found to be entirely innocent and obviously the, the state's version of events found to be completely false. So we do have mechanisms at the minute that are delivering for victims. So the UK government are coming in to pull the rug from under other victims who are now just getting their inquests underway. So if the UK government were sincere in their intent to come up with a victim-centred process. We would see those processes continuing, and they wouldn't have reneged on what had been an agreed way forward. So any claims by government to be trying to deliver truth and justice for victims rings entirely hollow. If we consider developments in other cases there recently, including that of Aidan McInnesby, there obviously the evidence was tested in court. Aidan was killed on his way to a Gaelic football match, and the soldier who faced a charge of manslaughter was found guilty in November of 2022. So I don't think any of us underestimate that the passage of time can have, in some cases, a diminishing f- effect. But it also still is possible for victims to secure justice. But victims are not a homogenous group. You know, some will obviously want the truth of events, and others will obviously want other justice processes available to them. But what the UK government are doing here is essentially creating a a two-tier justice system in the UK. So if your loved one was killed in the Northern Ireland conflict-related circumstances, then you won't get justice. But if someone loses a loved one, obviously, if a loved one was murdered in another context, then they will have access to the courts. So we are in quite unprecedented territory here, and I think it is particularly concerning that Given the warnings that have come from so many sources now, including obviously from the US Congress as well, that the UK government appear to be pressing on regardless. But of course, it's not too late for them to pause this bill, to pause the legislative process and abandon the bill and recommit to good faith negotiations with the Irish government and others on how to move forward.
0: Graunia Tegart from Amnesty. Now, we did ask for an interview with the Northern Ireland Secretary of State, Chris Eaton-Harris, the Minister, Steve Baker, or Lord Kane, who was steering the legislation through the House of Lords. That request was declined, nor did the Northern Ireland office send us a statement. My name is Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast, produced by me and Harvey White and funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. You get more details about how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.